Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenus here. Another episode of Most Notorious coming at you today. So glad you're here. And a big welcome today to James Crossland. He is a reader in international history at Liverpool John Moores University. He has recently published his third book, and it's called The Rise of Devils, Fear and the Origins of Modern Terror and it focuses on the development of international terrorism across the transatlantic world during the late 19th century. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So where did the inspiration for this book come from? A couple of things. I'd been writing about networks and the means by which information sort of moved around the transatlantic world in the late 19th century. And that was a a previous book where I was looking at basically ideas about warfare and how to to limit the excesses of it. And I realized when I was going through the source material there that there were a number of people who were involved in these sort of proto-pacifist movements, I guess, who were also inclined towards uh, radical ideology, uh, anarchism being a, a, a key one. And I started thinking a bit about uh, anarchism in this period and the means by which anarchist ideas were sort of bounced around around the world. And it brought me back to something that had been bothering me for the better part of two decades. And that was this idea that was laid down in the wake of 9-11, when the, the war on terror was declared by George W. Bush. I remember that the, that press and politicians and various other people always kept saying, we've never experienced this before. This is new, this idea of a, a global terrorist threat, this idea of uh, an international struggle against it. This was unprecedented in history. And, and that, that bothered me at the time, and it continued to bother me as I became a professional historian. And I kind of put two and two together, and I started reading about the, the anarchist terrorist wave of the late 19th century. And I thought to myself, well, clearly nothing about this was new. Um, There was this global terrorist threat, chiefly through anarchists, but also through other radicals of the era. And it was perceived at the time as a global terrorist threat. And so with a a typical historian's mind, I said to myself, well, if the, the war on terror that I know, the one from the 21st century, if that's nothing new, and if the war on terror from the late 19th century is nothing new, then maybe there's something that goes back even further. And so I started 
trying to basically trace where the anarchist terrorists of the 19th century got their ideas from. And I landed um, a couple of decades prior, really in about, about the, the 1850s. And that's where the, the idea for the rise of devils came from. I wanted to trace the development of terrorism as a tactic and with it, the, the means by which that tactic became diffused across the world, culminating in this, this first war on terror in the late 19th century. And, and proof of concept that I was on the right track was confirmed to me when I started looking through press reports from this period. And I came across a headline in the New York Times uh, from 1881, the spring of 1881, where they declared the need for a war on terrorism. And at that point, I said to myself, yeah, I'm, I'm on the right track here. And this is a, a history I'd, I'd really like to write. Interesting. Yeah. So your, your book begins on the evening of January 14th, 1858. Uh, Parisians, you write, were flocking to the city's opera house, home to the Paris Opera, to watch a performance of William Tell. Can you walk us through that evening? Tell us what happened. Yes. So it's a cold winter evening in Paris. The Opera House is, has got a, a, a pretty big show on. And the Emperor of the French, Napoleon III, a nephew of the more famous Bonaparte, he is going to attend the opera. And it's very well known that he's going to attend that night. And it's somewhat of a celebrity occasion, so you've got people lining the streets to greet his carriage, a couple of hundred people actually. It's quite quite an event. And it's all it's all happy and everything's going well, and it's chance of Viva la Emperor, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And the carriage pulls up to the entrance to the opera house, and all of a sudden there's this almighty explosion. Big cloud of smoke. Lots of screams, lots of um, shouting, lots of confusion. And it turns out that what's happened is three bombs have been thrown at the emperor's carriage. And these three bombs are shrapnel grenades. So they blast outward, sending um, shrapnel into this, this densely packed crowd that is around the carriage. Uh, well over 100 people are, are wounded. Eight people die. Napoleon himself is fine. His hat gets a little bit damaged. That's about it. His uh, wife gets a, a bit of a bit of glass from one of the shattered windows of the carriage in her eye, but otherwise than that, the royal couple are in, in pretty good shape. And this attempt on the life of Napoleon III was was seen as such by historians for a good number of years. It was seen as a, a a regicide, an attempted regicide, like many others that go back centuries, you know, uh, someone trying to smite a tyrant. But I was looking at it and thinking, well, there's something else going on here because the whoever threw these bombs, first of all, they, they picked a, a very strange weapon for carrying out an assassination, a shrapnel grenade, throwing it at a wooden carriage. That doesn't sound very foolproof to me. And so I was thinking, well, why a shrapnel grenade? Why a shrapnel grenade when there's a crowd? Why three of them? What was the purpose behind all this? And I started delving into it a bit more, and I realized that the, the man who perpetrated this, this attempted regicide was an Italian nationalist by the name of Felice Orsini. And he, with 
three conspirators came up with this idea to kill Napoleon, but not just to kill Napoleon. Orsini developed a special weapon, uh, which would become to, to be known as the Orsini bomb, which was this improvised explosive device, IED, that was a, um, uh, a percussion detonated shrapnel grenade. Percussion detonated means that you throw it against a hard surface and, and it detonates. You don't need to light a fuse. It's a, essentially an idiot proof weapon. And when it detonated, it sent shrapnel over a wide area. And I was thinking about, well, why did he develop this bomb specifically for this purpose? If his aim was to kill the emperor, what's, wh why go to this, all this trouble? Why not just try to shoot him or stab him as, as assassins of the past had done? And I found that Orsini had this wider vision for, for what he was doing. On the one hand, yes, he wanted to assassinate Napoleon because he felt that that would kickstart a, a political movement towards uh, Italian independence. Italy is not a country at this time. It's a, a divided uh, peninsula. And so Napoleon is, is a power broker on that peninsula. And the idea is that if you get rid of Napoleon, then this will start this war for independence, which will lead to Italian unity, which is what Orsini wants. But then he also had a grander plan, and that was to use the attack to strike fear into the heart of Parisians and into the heart of not just Napoleon, but his, his regime. He wanted to send a message to tyrants across Europe, in fact, that anyone who could get hold of a, of a simple IED like this could bring an emperor to their knees, could effectively upturn an entire empire, in fact, by killing said emperor. So he was looking for a very terroristic method to what he was doing. And so it was both an attempted regicide and, as I argue in Rise of Devils, the first act of modern terrorism, uh, because it, it achieved all the things that we think of modern terrorists wanting to do. It created fear. It used an innovative IED. It was aimed at a political goal. And it also grabbed international attention. Orsini grabbed headlines across Europe, the United States, Australia, New Zealand. He was reported on everywhere. And his act was interpreted not just by the kind of people that, that Orsini wanted to uh, make frightened of political radicalism, but also by radicals themselves, many of whom looked at Orsini and said, oh, this is, this is a guy we can emulate. So he becomes a very influential figure, I think, in the history of terrorism. He is, in many respects, the progenitor of, an in, of this terrorist wave that I wanted to investigate in the book. And he was part of an organization called the Carbonari, which was already decades old when this assassination attempt happened. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a secret society that was dedicated to the unification of Italy. Orsini is an interesting character in, in this context because you have members of the Cabanari who don't necessarily favor terroristic methods. They see more the idea of a, of a noble struggle for Italian independence, um, guerrilla fighting, uh, asymmetrical warfare, uh, things of that nature. And that, that idea within the Italian nationalist movement is taken on by Giuseppe Garibaldi, who becomes a very dashing and famous revolutionary figure in this era. Orsini sets himself apart from a lot of other Italian nationalists because he looks at this idea of fighting some kind of 
big battle as a, a lost cause. He he thinks more strategically, and he embraces terrorist tactics to that end. And that's another reason why I think he's such an important figure, because within the field of political radicalism, he rejects this this old idea that was still being nursed by a number of radicals of various movements across Europe at this time, that the way that you change the world is through a blood on the streets revolution. This is a, a sort of echo of the memories of, of the French Revolution uh, and more recently the 1848 revolutions, which spread out across Europe, where you had nationalists and socialists and various other radicals taking to the streets, engaging in pitched fights with soldiers and police and so forth. Orsini looks at that and says, well, this isn't going to get us anywhere. We're always going to be outgunned. We're always going to be outmatched. What we need to do is to outthink these people. And he saw a form of asymmetrical warfare that today we would call terrorism as the best alternative method to uh, achieve those political ends. So Orsini is injured in the blast, and he's in kind of a confused state, and he wanders off, leaving a trail of blood behind him. Yes which makes him easy to track. Yes, he's, he's very much a victim of his own genius here. In developing the bomb, as I say, it's a shrapnel effect that is designed to cause injury over a wide area. It's a very rudimentary IED, though. Uh, it's, not, it's not an exact science. Uh, these are the prototypes of what becomes a generation of of percussion detonated grenades based on Orsini's design. So they're far from perfect. He's only tested them once, maybe twice uh, beforehand in uh, where they were developed. He developed them in, in England with um, a few conspira fellow conspirators there who helped him to construct these IEDs. So he doesn't really know exactly what's going to happen when they go off. And as such, he's a little bit too close to the one that he throws and he gets some shrapnel in the head, which from what we can gather, and it's hard to piece this together completely this far removed, but it's, it, it, to my mind, he concusses himself. Um, he certainly injures himself enough that he's discovered by the police not long after the bombing, basically passed out with, with a, a, a bandage wrapped around his head to, to stifle the bleeding. It's a, it's a sort of tragic comic end for him, which engenders a domino effect whereby uh, the other members of the team are, are wrapped up in pretty short order. So they all, they all get caught. Right, right. And they are executed, right? Uh, so Orsini and uh, another conspirator are, there's, a, there's an interesting thing that happens with uh, one of them who, who basically has a, a, a bit of a breakdown before throwing the bomb. He kind of has this uh, pang of conscience, um, panics, what, what have you, and decides he's not going to throw the bomb. And he's actually, actually apprehended before the bombing. And then there's another one who ends up going to, uh, I think he gets sent to Devil's Island, which was a place for political criminals, notorious at the time in France. But he's eventually reprieved from there. And there's various other conspirators that go on trial. Uh, one in, in Britain in particular who's very important, a, a French conspirator by the name of Simon Bernard, who is basically made the subject of a, of a, a pretty spectacular, spectacular trial where he is indicted as an international conspirator 
in this in this uh, plot against Napoleon. So it becomes a becomes a, a, a pretty a pretty big deal in Britain in particular because, as I say, the the bombing was planned there. So it's seen as this as an international terrorist event, which is another reason that that makes it seem very very modern. You know, it, it, it affects uh, British politics. There's debates in Parliament about whether or not Britain had somehow slipped up in its immigration policy, letting violent radicals from the continent come over to Britain and, and build bombs and plan assassinations of emperors. And so it engenders a kind of political discussion, which is not that unfamiliar today about, about immigration, and about um, uh, border security and things of that nature. Yeah. So this attempt on Napoleon's life has ripple effects across the world, and many who are disaffected politically in other countries are inspired by Orsini's actions, correct? Yes. I'm at pains in Rise of Devils to try to, as much as I can, look at terrorism as a tactic rather than something that is dependent on ideology. And I think the reaction to Orsini globally evidences that. And I say that because radicals with all kinds of grievances in different countries, some with, with, some with grievances that are specific to that country, they all look at this Italian nationalist, this guy who's trying to kill the French emperor because he wants to terrorize the tyrants of Europe and unify his country. He becomes lauded by people who who don't know anything about that stuff to them that that struggle the struggle for italian uh, independence national unity that's it, it's irrelevant to them but what is relevant is orsini has developed this bomb and he set the example that you can terrorize even even if you aren't successful in killing your target you could still create terror with said bomb and some of the groups that are inspired by Orsini, and this is by no means an exhaustive list because, as I say, his, his legend grows over time, um, and he really becomes lauded for, I'd say, the next next couple of decades, really, until the anarchists kind of consume his legend with their own. But you have, for example, the nihilists in Russia. These are people who are anti-Czarists. Their concern is for killing the czar and hopefully engendering a new perhaps more liberal democratic form of, of governance in russia that's their concern they don't care about italian independence but they nonetheless take inspiration from Orsini and they try to acquire blueprints for his bomb polish nationalists also in, in russia poland's part of russia empire of russia at this time they use orsini bombs in 1863 to attack the russian viceroy there the Fenians, Irish Republicans, fighting for independence from Britain, they stumble upon the Orsini bomb, and there's rumors of uh, Orsini bomb factories being being developed by the Fenians in London and perhaps even in Paris. The Orsini bomb is used in the U.S. Civil War. A version of it is developed uh, by the Union in 1862. It's called the Haynes Excelsior Grenade. It's based on the, uh, the Orsini design. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. In the lead up to that, uh, there's discussion amongst the raiders about getting Orsini bombs. And I can't remember the quote verbatim, but it's something along the lines of, we can use these to terrorize the slavers um, if we 
detonate these things it's going to it's going to frighten our adversaries so there's not just it's not just the bomb itself it's an understanding of what it means psychologically and how it can be deployed and as i say whether it's people struggling against uh, slavery in, in in the united states whether it's irish republicans or it's russian nihilists nationalists of various stripes across um, across europe the Ossini bomb and the man himself are, are really become bywords for the radical struggle karl marx himself talks about orsini as a uh, he refers to him as the great martyr uh who, who who tried to to smite the tyrant being napoleon the third who marx was not a particularly big fan of and then marx was not an advocate of, of terrorism but he nonetheless looked at orsini and said this this guy gets it this guy understands the struggle and the the lengths to which we can be driven for this for this wider struggle to emancipate the world from its various oppressors. So he he has a wide fandom. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. Up to this point... There had been other assassinations in world history, but as you said, the fact that a bomb was used here, which endangered and outright killed innocent civilians, that is part of what separates this event from others. That is what instilled terror, the fact that anyone could be affected by, by a weapon like this. But, but there are other parts to this too, right? Other things that make this bombing unique. Yes, that's... That's one part of it, the, the, the fact that there's, there's a deliberate attempt to terrorize wrapped up in this attack. The other part of it is that there is something has happened in the, in the middle of the 19th century, which was genuinely unprecedented up until this point in human history. And that's the arrival, the, the development of global mass media. And this is a really important point, and it's something I really latch onto in Rise of Devils. I used a lot of newspaper reportage uh, as my source base for this, and 
I went very deeply into, as I say, the means by which information is pushed around the world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the first real global terrorist wave occurs at precisely the same time that we are getting the 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 foundations for what today we would think of as the global media ecosystem being laid. These foundations were things like the lifting of restriction on who could and who could not print uh, newspapers, magazines, uh, periodicals, and so forth in various European countries. We have the growth of the the yellow press, as it was known, the sort of fake news tabloidy press in the United States in the 1880s, 1890s. You've got telegraph lines being laid across the world from the 1850s onwards that's allowing for information to be to be spread across the world at pretty what for the time is a pretty fast speed um improvements in the speed of, of steamships and so forth as well is moving is moving written material around the world at new speeds and you've got the the growth of newspaper magnates as well during this period you kind of precursors to the to the Rupert Murdoch's of the world today and so you you have all these things happening and with it the diffusion of information and you also have no regulation or very little and this is an important point um today we we can complain a lot and rightly so about our news media and about some of the more scandalous reportage that goes on lack of fact checking fake news the complete bandit country that is social media the fact that anyone could basically say anything and that's all problematic but during this period it's one of the many resonances in rise of devils with our own time all of this is happening very fast and and it's happening at a, at a pace that i don't think people fully understand the implications of uh unfettered information being moved around the world restrictions on the movement of this information are slim to none you've got ability for people to print relatively cheap, cheaply through uh, new technology, new uh, penny presses that allow for, uh, or jobber presses as they're sometimes known to, to uh, create pretty cheap magazines and, and, and pamphlets that are distributed widely. So you have a lot of information being put out there and there's no real means of, of filtering out what's, what's right, what's wrong, what's dangerous, what's not. And this means that when Orsini's bomb is reported initially in the press as this this shrapnel grenade you actually get some newspapers and magazines talking in great depth about this bomb how it works what materials it constituted basically a how-to for anyone picking up the magazine of how to actually construct a, a terrorist ied you also have orsini's cause being put out there into the press this is why he did it this is these are his justifications he wants this to happen he sees this vision for europe and this is the sort of stuff that whilst you still get some of this in the more reckless press of today there really has been a a concerted effort in recent years in particular to to make sure that reportage on the manifestos of of terrorists is, is really quite limited because there's an acknowledgement that you can engender uh emulation you can inspire people you can put dangerous ideas into people's heads that wasn't understood back then and so the reportage on orsini really is basically to sum it up here's this guy with this amazing 
ambitious political vision who's develops this easy to use bomb he wasn't successful in killing his target but nonetheless he's this sensational figure who we're reporting on constantly he's got global press coverage it's a very dangerous situation and that's part of the reason why as i say not just the man but his bomb as well becomes this 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 icon for for radicals the world over they're able to read about him read about his bomb and be inspired accordingly so it's not just the tactic itself it's the fact that the the media infrastructure is existing at this time to popularize orsini and to publicize his tactic right so yeah you've already mentioned a bit about this but in the u.s in 1858 there's a lot of political turmoil you know it's it's three years before the american civil war begins and uh Interestingly, John Brown, the famous abolitionist, he draws inspiration from Orsini, but John Wilkes Booth, who, of course, would assassinate President Lincoln, also admires what Orsini tried to do, and they could not be more different politically. Yes, and that goes to my point about how he's seen at the time I guess with the baggage of of you know over 150 years or so we we can look at this now through a, a kind of political lens and we can make value judgments on Orsini. At the time I get the impression that he was seen by everyone from uh, John Wilkes Booth to as you say John Brown to to Fenians to Polish nationalists as a guy who who is proving a point that anyone can can move the wheels of history, if you like, um, if they have the the ability, the 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 will, and the access to weaponry. And part of what attracts John Wilkes Booth to him, I mean, John Wilkes Booth, obviously an actor, he's got a flavor for the dramatic. He really loved the drama of this. He loved uh, the the whole the whole concept. Um, and certainly, I, I think he would have appreciated that Orsini got his flowers, as it were. He he really he was was lauded by a, a lot of people. I'm sure that was something that Wilkes Booth looked at and, and admired. But he also said it's quite interesting. He said, you know, if, if if it was me doing it, I would have done it properly. You know, Orsini is a bit of foreshadowing there. Orsini Orsini botched it, but if I was the one holding the bomb, I would have I would have done it right, which is just you know fascinating knowing what what we know is going to happen and i think that part of why he leaks into that really fraught situation that you described in in america and in the lead up to the civil war is because orsini is is reported on widely and there's a debate in the press between the more conservative press who who look at him as uh, a danger someone and then they interpret him correctly as someone who could inspire acts of political violence in, in the United States at this time when there's this increasingly violent, heated debate over slavery. So there is that that fear that he could spark something bigger. But then you've also got his defenders who, who look at Orsini and say, well, no, this, this man is a he, – he was trying to, to pursue freedom. And is that not what the United States is about? So it's you get that that 
the the debate that today you might call the the Star Wars conundrum. You know, is is Luke Skywalker the 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 hero who destroys the Death Star? Or is he the greatest terrorist the galaxy's ever seen? The, the a version of that debate arises in the American press when discussing Orsini, and there's particularly particularly lingering in that debate is this idea that that he could have this influence, which I think I, I found fascinating because to me it, it sort of proved this idea that I was toying with at the time that that terrorism is becoming a trans a transatlantic transnational phenomenon at this point it doesn't matter that this is an italian trying to kill a frenchman over in europe the act itself is seen as dangerous enough by certain people in the united states to warrant censure because there's a fear that that he will inspire not just uh, someone like john brown but on the other side of the ledger as you say someone like john wilkes booth so as you mentioned, the basic design of the bomb, it was printed in papers, people were doing their best to replicate it, but also to improve it, make it more lethal. Yes. Uh, as I say, the, the design of the bomb was reported on, but not necessarily accurately and not necessarily in its entirety. So you had people trying to sort of put the pieces together of how, uh, literally and figuratively, of how you could actually construct this IED. Um, but there was enough information out there for a number of people to, to get the basic design down and to start uh, experimenting with it. And particularly once we get past the, the 1850s, get to the 1860s, when dynamite is invented in 1867, or it's patented in 1867 by Alfred Nobel, there's a whole new dimension to this now because the, the original uh, explosive in the Orsini bomb, which was fulminated mercury, not uh, somewhat unstable, not particularly uh, explosive, has now been replaced with dynamite, which is a lot more stable and a lot more uh, destructive. And you have variants of the Orsini bomb emerging in the 1870s and right through to the 1890s. In fact, as, as late as the early 1900s, you've got, uh, I think it was uh, Indian nationalists, if I remember correctly. Uh, tried to derail a train in in Kolkata with a, a what was essentially an Orsini bomb, but it was charged with dynamite. So the actual design persists and is modified. There's variants that seem to pop up in the early 1870s in France that have got nails packed into them and glass packed into them, and they're really really awful stuff. But it's all working off this original basic design that is toyed with uh, over time and refined and, and made more lethal, more devastating, and more horrific uh, as each new generation of terrorists latches onto it. Right, yeah. So one of these groups that, that plotted to reproduce Orsini's bomb was a group of Russian extremists in the mid-1860s who wanted to kill the Tsar. Can you talk more about this group why they were attempting what they were attempting and how far they got. So the original group that fixated on Orsini and as, as well as other European radicals, they were inspired in part by the Jacobins and the French Revolution, but really they, they looked at Orsini and his bomb as a, a good roadmap, if you like, to, to how to terrorize an, an imperial court and, and assassinate an emperor. They were a group of nihilists who went by the, uh, the, the name of Hell. Very unsubtle. <laughs> uh, but it was part of their 
their, I guess, um, way of projecting themselves, their, their image to adopt such a menacing name, Hell. And, and within Hell, there was a, a subgroup that were just called the organization, which also is rather ominous sounding. And part of the reason why they, they adopted these names is because they were, at the end of the day, for want of a better term, cosplay terrorists. They didn't really have any solid plans. The, the man who was, who was running the show, he was um, a school teacher by the name of uh, Nikolai Shutin, who was, as I say, one of these nihilists adherent to the belief that the only way to reform Russia was to murder the Tsar. But he, he wasn't particularly well organized. They had very little funding, if any. He attracted a lot of people who uh, today we would call them vulnerable to his cause, people with mental illness, people who, who had no money, people who were unemployed, had no way to live, and also a number of very young, impressionable university students. So they were, they were not, this was not a professional terrorist organization by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and they, but they were treated as such by the authorities and they were basically rounded up and, and dismantled as a group when one of their number, a man by the name of Karakazov, uh, attempted to, to uh, shoot the Tsar. When he did so, he failed. He was apprehended, and uh, through his interrogation, the entire the entire group was was rolled up. And it should be mentioned that his shooting, it's his attempted shooting of the Tsar. It wasn't it wasn't authorized by the group. It wasn't planned. This was just Karakazov going going off on his own and, and deciding he was going to do it. So not a particularly organized group. But they were, as I say, inheritors of the Orsini tradition in that they had read about Orsini, they were inspired by him. They sent one of their number to Geneva with the hopes that they could acquire plans for the Orsini bomb and make connections to other European radicals. So they had ambitions, but, but not ability. But they were the, the first of a, a series of groups that emerged in Russia in the 1860s and through to the late 1870s, uh, nihilists who became arguably the the first real organized terrorist from the the very ramshackle humble beginnings of hell by the time we get to 1879 the nihilist group produced the nihilist movement produces what some historians have argued is is the world's first proper terrorist group and i say proper because this was a group that was well organized they were well funded they may even have had support from within the Tsar's court by uh, more more liberal members of the court who, who agreed in, to a certain extent that the Russia needed reform. They were run by uh, middle-class middle educated folks, people who had something to lose. They had a cellular structure so they could work in small groups that didn't know what the other was doing. So if someone got apprehended, you wouldn't... Um, the entire network wouldn't collapse. They had a dedicated bomb maker, someone who is well-versed in, in the dynamite or scenic technology and gunpowder, as well as uh, various other chemical agents. And they, in 1879, declared that they were going to, well, they, they declared that the Tsar was in fact already dead, Tsar Alexander II. He was already dead, he just didn't know it yet. And they were going to to make that happen. And this group were called uh, the People's Will, or Narodnavolia in, in Russian. Um, they were, as I say, or have come down in, in history, as I say, as, as 
probably the world's first organized terrorist group. And from 1879 to the early 1880s, they were, uh, they grabbed the same headlines Orsini did. They became international sensations, synonymous with terrorism, this, this burgeoning tactic and were, were feared the world over. And they were, in fact, the source of the, the headline I mentioned at the start uh, from 1881, the, where the New York Times is reporting on the culmination of their campaign, which was the, the successful assassination of Tsar Alexander II on the streets of St. Petersburg in, uh, in March 1881. So the New York Times reporting on that, this event that's happened in distant Russia, and saying we, there needs to be a war on terrorism because these people are out of control. So they have a massive impact, and in in achieving what Orsini did not, namely the murder of a, of a an emperor, a god ordained emperor, as the Tsar styled himself, murdered by a suicide bomber, just some some random guy on the streets of St. Petersburg with dynamite clutched to his chest, that provided a proof of concept for for what Orsini had set out. This idea that that um you know emperors can bleed and and empires can be made to suffer. And uh, you don't need a standing army to do it. So they, in many respects, inherited uh, the the mantle. Uh, People's will did of, of Orsini as being the 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 terrorists who who others looked at for inspiration. Huh. How long did Orsini's influence last? Well, I don't think he fades from memory entirely. Um, he still lauded well into the the 1890s by uh, certain groups, anarchists in particular. And his bomb really does endure. Um, it's actually uh, uh, carved onto the La Sagrada Familia in uh, Barcelona by uh, Anton Gaudi in the 1890s. He carves a, a worker, an oppressed worker of the world, holding an Orsini bomb. It's a kind of symbol of defiance against the powers that be and I, I often think of the Orsini bomb and the, the legacy that it creates and the, the image of it. It's kind of like the AK-47 in the 1960s and 1970s. It's recognized as this global symbol of uh, defiance, uh, anti-colonial resistance in particular, and, and revolutionary violence. And I think the Orsini bomb fills that role during this period. So whilst the man himself... Uh, I think probably fades from memory quicker than his bomb. Um, that he does nonetheless leave this lasting legacy and is built on, as I say, by groups like uh, Narona Volia, who, who take, again, it's not, it's, not, it's not the cause that's important necessarily as it is the tactic and, and the thinking behind it that they really um, impress upon not just the people of Russia during their campaign of terror which is comprised of about a dozen or so bombings across russia from 1879 to 1882 or so but but worldwide um they they become i wouldn't say a household name but they become known enough to be seen as a group particularly by the police in in certain countries that that might even have cells in other countries even though as I say, people's will are only really concerned with Russia and, and the Tsar. In France, there's a belief that they have set up uh, cells there and that there's there's Russian nihilists in, in France who are planning their own terrorist attacks on French soil. So they kind of create their own myth uh, that, that builds and, and, and amplifies the fears that Orsini first sets in place 
um, a couple of decades prior. Back after these brief messages. And we have returned once more. So as the world entered the 20th century, did terrorism continue to evolve? And was there any specific act of terror, any event that especially sent shockwaves? I wouldn't say there's a specific event, but there's there's multiple attacks. And it's more about, it's less about spectaculars, as we would call them today, which I would count um, the assassination of, of Tsar Alexander in particular as, as, as being one. It's more about scale. So by the late 1880s, uh, Naranda Volya has, has been dissolved as a group, uh, the, the Russian secret police, the Okhrana, clamp down on them, infiltrate them, and manage to, to destroy the, the, the group from within by the, the middle of the 1880s. But the legacy, their legacy, and not just their legacy, but the wider growth of political violence and the dissemination of knowledge about things like bombs, as well as the tactic itself and, and the, the, the idea that you, you, you can strike fear through acts of violence and, and get across the, your political struggle, that starts resonating with a, a new group who really are the, the people who are often seen as the, the authors of the first true global terrorist wave. Because keep in mind, Orsini, although he has global influence, his attack is in, is in France and it's, it's about the geopolitics of Europe, just as Narodnovolia become an international name, but they are concerned with Russia. The first real international threat comes from the anarchists who pick up the mantle of the aforementioned terrorists in the late 1880s, 1890s. And no one, I think, could could accurately come up with a number to describe how many anarchist terrorist attacks occur from the the end of the late 19th century through until, well, really through until the, the 1920s, when you still are getting anarchist terrorist attacks in Europe and the United States, as well as in the colonial world. I don't think there's a number we can put on that, but it's, it's, it's into the hundreds. And certainly in the 1890s, when this first terrorist wave first literally explodes, principally in Europe, but also in the United States uh, in various forms, you get a real panic, uh, a real hysterical panic, actually, over the anarchist threat. And part of the hysteria is because the tactic has changed ever so slightly and in, in a way that we would find eerily and depressingly familiar today. Orsini did kill civilians, but his, his main object was an emperor. Just as Narodnavolia, when they tried to kill the Tsar on one infamous occasion, they, they smuggled a time bomb into the Winter Palace, his residence, and uh, it went off. The Tsar was not dining in that particular room that it was set in that evening, and so instead of some servants were killed um, and guards. Again, innocents are killed, but people's will's ultimate aim was to kill the Tsar. What the anarchists do is they target all and sundry. They don't just go after kings, emperors, presidents, although they do do that. There's plenty of very high-profile political assassinations in the 1890s uh, and early 1900s. But 
what they're really trying to do is to create a climate of of terror against enemies that they see everywhere. So this includes police, and not just police chiefs, but ordinary police on the beat, police barracks, police stations. It includes people uh, dining in, in nice cafes and restaurants. There's a famous bombing that occurs in Paris where the, the Cafe Terminus is bombed, which is a, a place where people go after work to you know, have, a, have an after work drink and, and so forth. And that's just bombed uh, by, by an anarchist who, who sees the people who are, as I say, getting off work, enjoying themselves, relaxing as somehow an affront to his beliefs. Um, there's another incident in, w- in which uh, uh, a cafe that used to cater for, for working men is converted into a, a kind of trendy restaurant. So trendy, in fact, that uh, diplomats dine there. And so there's an anarchist, this is in France again, who, who wanders in there and stabs the most well-dressed person he can he can find. And it turns out to be the Serbian ambassador. Uh, he didn't mean it to be a political assassination, but it becomes one because he he, he randomly picks the guy with the nicest suit and decides, well, he's a he's fair game. So you get more random attacks. And probably to, to your question about any spectacular attacks, probably the most spectacular of the anarchist epoch uh, occurs in 1894 in um, Barcelona with uh, a bombing at the theater there where dynamite-charged Orsini bombs are thrown from the balcony into the theater pit killing and, and wounding uh, scores of people. It's a very deadly terrorist attack. And these, again, these are just people who are out at the theater for the evening. So the targeting of the indiscriminance of the anarchist wave adds a new dimension to things. And that gets taken to even more extreme in uh, the early 1900s in Russia when you get the rise of what, what is known as motiveless terrorism anarchists and nihilists going around and just shooting random people, blowing up public places, setting fires, acts, acts of, of, of what some of them freely admit are meaningless, you know, devoid of any political context other than they're irritated, they're frustrated, and they, they want to lash out and commit violence. So it gets to to that extent where you've got motiveless terrorists running around Russia in the early 1900s, killing thousands of people uh, during that period. But the anarchist wave of the 1880s and 1890s really sets the template for that that indiscriminacy. And that, I think, is an important twist in the development of, of terrorism. It's important to point this out. It's not one that is fully embraced by all anarchists. There is a big debate within the anarchist movement over the, the legitimacy of this with a number of, of, I would say, the more philosophical anarchists pointing out, and quite rightly so, that this kind of violence just damages their cause. It makes them look like criminals. It makes them look like murderers. It undermines the cause of anarchism itself. And so you get this schism within the movement between those who think that the world could be changed through thoughts and ideas and those who think that it's it's deeds alone that are going to, and violent deeds that are going to, um, to bring on the the revolution they all want. So they really are the 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 apotheosis of this this period of of the steady development of terrorist violence and tactics that, as I say, really starts with Orsini in eighteen fifty eight. 
What were anarchists during this time period uh, in general looking to achieve? Um, in, in, in brief, a, a world without gods or masters, which is a reference to a famous anarchist um, book. It's, it's the breaking down of society as it is conceived of. So kings, capital, um, social norms, systems. You get that, that's the philosophy broadly speaking, but then you also get divergent streams of that. You get anarchists who look at the idea of having cooperation at a local level and sort of coming up with their own kind of units of, of self-governance that, that don't require outside interference. You have anarchists who are, well, most anarchists are inherently internationalists, so they want a world without borders. They want a world without empires. There are some that are increasingly in the 1880s and 1890s when you've got a real tension between the, the second industrial revolution is happening. You've got appalling working conditions for people across the industrialized world. You've got mass strikes. You've got worker agitation. There's a big stream within the anarchist movement that's that's saying, you know, we need to get rid of the factories, we need to get rid of factory owners, the landlords, and, and this is the delving into the more sort of socialist trend of seizing the means of production. There are others who, who simply want money to be abolished. And then there are others who who are just just moving towards that that motiveless terrorism I mentioned before, which if I can, you know, quote a great Batman film. Uh, these are people who just want to see the world burn. Um, there's a number of them as well who, when you actually look at them and look at what they say and, and what they think and what they do, it's really, you can't help but be drawn to the conclusion that they don't actually understand what anarchism is. Uh, they just see it as this outlet for their frustrations and, uh, and a means of, of justifying violence. And there's a number of cases in France in particular of, angry young men, basically, out of work, unemployed, directionless, angry. Um, they feel oppressed. They self-radicalize because they're reading the, the magazines I mentioned before, which are freely published, disseminating not just anarchist ideas, but a lot of violent ideas, talking about, well, this, this anarchist set this bomb off in this country and isn't this wonderful? You should do the same. That that kind of stuff is being published in some of these magazines, and for the people in this state of mind, it, it it makes an impression. And so you do get a lot of copycats, a lot of emulators, and this creates this self perpetuating cycle, really, where where certain anarchists follow the lead of others, and in the midst of all this, as I say, you've got this this raging debate over the over the damage this is doing to the ideology itself, and that goes back to the point of leading a number of anarchist figures to think, well, what is it we're actually trying to achieve here? And some of them settle on this notion that, well, actually, maybe it's not a violent revolution. Maybe the ideology itself is so profound and so meaningful and so important that all we need to do is to get the idea out there. Uh, we don't need bombs. We need pamphlets. We don't need uh, pistols. We need books. We need to put the idea out there and the oppressed of the world, the angry of the world, they'll get it and they'll just move towards anarchism naturally. That's something that uh, a number of anarchists start, start thinking about as, as a, as a, as a tonic to this idea 
embraced by the the hot bloods of the movement that will know if we go out there and we shoot someone, someone important, or we blow up something that's bourgeoisie, then we we will inspire a revolution against everything that we dislike, uh, drawn in 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 broad terms. And probably a, a really good example of that is one of the most significant attacks that occurs in the United States during this period, which is the assassination of President William McKinley in 1901. The man who shoots him is an anarchist who is basically a mentally mentally ill man by the name of uh, Leon Chogosh, who feels very dispossessed in the world. He's gone to a couple of anarchist lectures. He sort of thinks he understands the ideology. I personally don't think he did. There's probably some room for debate on that, but personally, I don't think he did. But he he thought that by killing McKinley, that would somehow help the work, the striking workers of the world. So you get these kind of these kind of bizarre calculations in the justification for a number of of terrorist acts during this period from the the perpetrators, which uh, I think speak to the the diffuse nature of what they were trying to achieve. A lot of them, I'm, I'm not sure they they knew themselves what they were trying to achieve. So one of the events you write about is Chicago's Haymarket Riot. And we did cover that on our show many years ago. But would, would you summarize that briefly and, and tell us the impact that it had? When it comes to Haymarket, so that, that's 1886 when, when the Haymarket bombing happens. And it's interesting that it, it's a significant, I, I said before that McKinley's assassination in 1901 is a very significant in, in the sort of annals of terrorist history in the United States. But Haymarket is perhaps more significant because it's the, it's the attack that really, really uh, wakes a lot of America up to this idea that, well, we do have an anarchist problem. Not to say that there hadn't been anarchist violence in the lead up to Haymarket in 1886. There had been, uh, as I say, a lot of worker agitation a lot of riots, um, a lot of uh, uh, disturbances and, and acts of political violence, some of which were perpetrated by anarchists, some by socialists, some by people who were just irritated at the state of things. So you've got a, a, a kind of pre-existing form of violence there, but uh, the United States has not yet experienced the kind of bouts of, of sustained terrorist uh, activity. Uh, in in the form that has has occurred in Europe, yes, you have the Ku Klux Klan emerging at the end of the the Civil War, but then first of all, their methods are very different to the ones in Europe. Uh, they, they, it's not a sort of strategic bombing in any in any way, shape, or form. There's no real central governance of the movement. There's no grand idea other than let's uh, hunt down. Freedmen and and um, whites who who favor the the outcome of the civil war. That's their motive, widely speaking, and it's not really it it doesn't have the same kind of acute um, influence, I think, on terrorism that that the movements in 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 Europe do. By the time that first clan or their first clan's wave of terror at least peters out, in sort of the early eighteen seventies. The first time when the federal government takes action against it, but from there to to Haymarket, 
there really aren't, as compared to Europe at least, that many terrorist attacks in the United States. So when the Haymarket bombing happens, it is this really significant thing. And because it's an anarchist, or it's thought of being an anarchist attack, it's seen as being part of this wider international struggle. So just for the benefit of those who might not have listened to your previous show, the Haymarket bombing comes out of a, a, a rally that occurs in Chicago at the Haymarket there, uh, which is held by striking workers who are have, at, at the end of this, or the culmination of this long and bitter dispute, um, industrial dispute. They turn up and, and the, the rally is re- relatively peaceful. The police then turn up and say, you've got to shut this down. And to this day, there's still debate over exactly the sequence of events, but basically some bombs go off. The police start shooting. Police officers are killed. Other people are killed. There's accusations on both sides of who throws the bombs. Is it an anarchist who turns up and tries to attack the police? Or is it the police throwing the bombs to try to engender an excuse to open fire on the workers? That was a debate then. It's still debated now by some historians. And it, it really leads to, to a spectacular trial, in which, which is not really about the, the, the men who are put on trial, because the evidence against them is, is very somewhat tangential in the grand scheme of things. As I say, no one can ever like, put a finger on who exactly threw the bombs. But what's put on trial is anarchy. Uh, and, and it's found guilty, and it's found guilty of being this poisonous ideology that has seeped into the American workers' psyche and that now poses a threat to the nation in the same way that it does in the rest of the, the transatlantic world. So the Haymarket is significant in, in really heightening concerns in the United States over anarchist terrorism. And those, those concerns only grow as the 1890s wear on, and they, they really reach a fever pitch after, as I say, McKinley is, is, is killed, because that is, well, can you get a more ultimate act of terrorism in the United States than, than the murder of a president? It's hard, it's hard to think of anything that, that, that could top that in terms of the, the massive resonance that it has in this context where there's already this fear of the, the oppressed rising up against, against the, the powers that be. So when McKinley is shot, it really does um, set in train a, a, a series of, of pretty important events not least of which being Teddy Roosevelt becoming president and, and declaring essentially that anarchism is this is something that the United States needs to stomp out and that it is this abhorrent ideology that is synonymous with terrorism. And that's not something that Roosevelt comes up with. By this stage, he's merely preaching to the choir across Europe and across the United States, where by the early 1900s, after a decade or so of, of these bombings and shootings and stabbings, there's a, a pretty solid narrative in the press um, which which says that anarchism is synonymous with terrorism. The two things are one and the same. And your book ends right in the year 1914 in an inconsequential little event that involved Franz Ferdinand of Austria. <laughs> Yeah, nothing, nothing major, nothing. Major. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you choose to end your book with his assassination? Um, two two reasons really. 
The first is that when you look at the motivations that lay behind the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, when you look at Young Bosnia and the Black Hand, the two groups that are involved in it, you see, particularly amongst the perpetrators themselves, Gavilla Princep and his, his fellow conspirators, you see the influence of the decades of previous terrorism. These young men, and they were young men who, who conceived of the assa- assassinating Franz Ferdinand, they had all read anarchist literature. They knew about the uh, the anarchist wave of terrorism that preceded them. Uh, one of them actually was effectively an anarchist. He certainly claimed to be. They knew about nationalist struggles uh, across the world. They knew about sectarian struggles. They were aware of the the Irish struggle for independence and the the Fenian bombing campaign of the 1880s that came out of that. They again, it's it's we always got to think about the context here. These are young men who have grown up in the shadow of the first age of terror. These are young, angry, radicalized men who have grown up in the shadow of the first age of terror. How could they not take influence from what's come before? And as I say, by this stage, you've got newspapers, books press narratives firmly established about what terrorism is, who perpetrates it, why they do it, how they do it. You've got, by the early 1900s, some of the terrorists of the previous uh, era who have have since sort of put down the bomb and the the knife and what have you, they've left behind memoirs. They've left behind treaties on what they did and why they did it, which these young men could read. So I think it's important to... Not, not, not downplaying their own political motivations and struggle, but I think it's also important to think about the the wider influence that the era they they were coming out of had on on their mindset, as indeed it is today. When you think about you know any any terrorist of any stripe is is going to be influenced by others because there's so much information out there, you can't help but but not be influenced if if this is the path down which you go. So that was the first reason why it, it seemed logical to me to, to see them as the, the culmination of this first era of terror. And the other reason was that really, obviously, the, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand engenders a domino effect that gives us the First World War. And during the First World War, all of a sudden, the, the anarchist threat, the terrorist threat, this idea of a global war on terror, well, that doesn't matter anymore because, because the world is now fighting an actual war. And although there's still terrorist attacks that occurred during the war, anarchist terrorist attacks, uh, Irish terrorist attacks, there is still terrorist violence. It's not a concern because the greatest war the world has ever seen is being fought, and that is of far greater importance to the governments of the world. And it's only really on the other side of the First World War that we, we get the emergence of, of terrorism again uh, in in the 1920s, where there are re- uh, a renewal of anarchist terrorist attacks and uh, increasingly terrorist attacks in the colonial world uh, as part of independence movements. And you also get uh, socialist violence as well and, and an increase in, in Fenian violence. So it all comes back. But I just thought that since Rise of Devils was concerned with that first age of terror, uh, because if you're going to sit down and write a, a history of terrorism, you can you could conceive. I mean, I could have conceivably taken it up to the Tuesday before I I submitted the book. You know, um, 
needed a cutoff point somewhere. And I, I really wanted to focus on that first stage of terror because I think it was so formative. I think it was so instructional. One of the things that really struck me in doing the research for Rise of Devils and when I when I really sat back and reflected on the whole story I told was that so much of this is familiar. There's nothing in here that struck me as unfamiliar from speaking as someone who was a, a young man when, when the events of 9-11 happened and who came of age into the, the world that that created and the, in the shadow of the war on terror. Thinking about that, I was just thinking, you know, none of this stuff from 120 years prior really, really seems that, that different. It's all the same thing. And that to me was the real take home here. So in setting out the story of how terrorism developed and why it developed the way it did and the, the lasting impacts of that era of development, I think uh, 1858 to 1914 is more than enough time to, to, to get that message across. Plus word limits, obviously, with books. you gotta, you got you to call time on it at some point. <laughs> right. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, well this has been really interesting. Uh, a bit different for this show, but um, fascinating to, to see how terrorism has, has developed over the years and how it affects our lives in modern times as well. It's very, it's very sobering to compare. It was sobering to compare it, I think. But that, that I think, is the – I mean, you know, it's, it's the beauty of history, isn't it? When you can, when you can sort of pick up a book and, and realize that what, we're, what we've been living through today or what we experience today, others have been through this before – you know, it's sometimes it's it's sobering, but I think it's also uh, somewhat comforting, maybe, to, to reflect on it and think, well, you know, you know, these these stories have, have been around a while. These these events have happened before. It's um, it was a really rewarding process for me. Right, almost everything we're living through now has has been lived through by others. Right. Yes. Yes. Almost. Almost. <laughs> few twists and few twists and turns to to keep us on our toes, but um. But yeah, AI is is new though. Oh yes, the dread the dreaded AI. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it was it was imagined, I, I suppose, in early science fiction. Well, yes, yes, yes. I mean, uh, the the idea is is certainly um certainly not new. No, there's a whole um yeah, there's the, that that'll uh, doubtless there'll, there'll be books out soon reflecting on that about the uh, the sort of intellectual history of AI because well. I mean, a lot of that started in about this period, to be honest, uh, a lot of the writing on that. So, you know, it's a fascinating period to delve into late 19th century. Some of the, so many of the ideas that come out of it um, really do, do resonate into, into the present day in, in some quite alarming ways a lot of the time. Yes, yes. So, so your book is published through Manchester Press, but it is available in the U.S. Uh, there's an ebook version, a hardcover version. Uh, yes, I believe it's it's also in uh, a number of bookstores. From what I from what I'm told, at least uh, uh, haven't uh, haven't uh, been over for a while, so I haven't been able to check. But next time I'm over, I, I will. Um, but yes, yes, uh, Rise of Devils is uh, available pretty much everywhere that books are. Oh, great, awesome! Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I, I so appreciate it. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, I have been speaking to James Crossland. His book is called The Rise of Devils, Fear and the Origins of Modern 
terror. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.